The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the massive move from cash into stocks and what some stunning new numbers suggest about the state of the markets right now. All that as a number of firms grow more bullish on your money. We'll debate that with the Investment Committee joining me this Friday. Jenny Harrington, Liz Young, Jim Labenthal, John Ajarian. He's the co-founder of Market Rebellion. Com. Happy Friday, everybody. Let's check stocks going for their first positive week in three. There's the board. That's some work to do. Dow is down 176. We've been kind of at the lows of the day. 180, we'll call it. S&P's down three quarters of 1%. NASDAQ's down again by a little bit greater than 1%, 15,025. Small caps, they're not doing that well today either. Down a quarter of 1%. Lots of questions now of where we are and this malaise that's seemed to have settled over the market. Even so, there is a lot of money moving into equities. Farmer Jim, apparently you're not the only one who is Mr. All-In. I say that because of an astounding stat from Bank of America today from their flow show on what is actually happening this week. We've talked so many negative headlines this week. Who says we're going to have a correction, this, that, and the other thing. $51.2 billion is going into stocks from cash, the largest inflow since March of 2021. Apparently, others think, like Ray Dalio does, that cash is trash. He said that this week. You're Mr. All-In, and I guess there are a lot of Mr. and Mrs. All-Ins, too. Well, I, I think so, and I think we've had quite a few of them on the show, you know, whether it's Adam Parker or Dubrovko from, from J.P. Morgan. And I think that we are mostly seeing the same thing. What we're seeing is a massive inventory restocking that's going to occur soon. And I can't tell you when. That may be part of the problem. I can't tell you when. Nobody can tell you when the chip shortage is going to end. Nobody can tell you how quickly the portage blockages in L.A. and Long Beach are going to, are going to last. But it feels pretty comfortable to say that they will not last forever. And when GM and Ford and everybody gets chips, they're going to be cranking out cars like crazy. That's going to filter through. That economic activity is going to filter through the entire national economy. Um, let me let me buttress my point a little bit more. Look at the economic indicators. Look at where jobless claims are right now. Factor in that kids are going back to school so parents can go back to work. Uh, think about the retail sales from this past week. I could go on and on. What I'm trying to say here is this. I feel like I'm looking at a different set of circumstances than the market is looking at. That's okay, because sometimes the market acts like a wet blanket. We know September tends to be one of those times. It's living up to billing. What I'm really trying to tell everybody is that wet blanket attitude the market has right now is not likely to last. Look at the economic fundamentals that we're about to come into, mainly the inventory restocking, and I'm not even going to mention infrastructure. Oh, there, I just did. Yeah. Liz Young, another big number from this flow show note, which really got our attention today, $61.8 billion out of cash. It's the largest outflow since July of 2020. So we're talking about in more than a year, the biggest move out of cash. And a lot of it is finding its home in stocks. Despite calls for a correction, despite talk of a malaise, what are we to make of it? Well, what I think is at play is that we've been doing this all year, this whole opportunity cost discussion and evaluating where is the biggest opportunity cost? 
What we've been thinking about all year until this point, I think, is is the bigger opportunity cost in cyclicals? Is it in tech? Are we missing out on something by being in the value trade over the growth trade? And that's why there's been this flip flop within the market. But really, the biggest opportunity cost is sitting in cash because you're earning nothing. And it's important for investors to have the opportunity to be in the market. So now you've got this whole movement from cash into equities. And then you might say to me, Scott, isn't that a suggestion of a bubble, right? We've got all this money moving into the market when we're at all time highs. No, because a bubble would also suggest that investors are being irrational. Coming out of cash where you're earning nothing or in fact earning a negative amount because of inflation is not irrational. It would be irrational to sit there and wait for something else to happen. So I don't want to paint a more positive picture than than actually exists. I mean, the, the market has been in a bit of a malaise. I think we've all witnessed that over the last week at minimum, Dr. J. Nor do I want to dismiss mm-hmm. seasonality, which, right, Kramer was talking today, starts actually this period of pullback for stocks historically, and it's worked pretty well over the past 20 years. Not to mention, Doc, that today is quad witching, which you can explain to people why there's such interest in all of these expirations, why there's a thought that it could bring more volatility on a day like today. And we do have stocks down across the board. Can you explain that to people, please? Sure. Um, and Scott, the, uh, I think the Michigan sentiment index today was a little negative. Uh, the fact that they're projecting year, uh, you know, up to a year out 4.7% inflation in that same uh, sentiment index uh, that the University of Michigan does. Also, a little re- reason to be softer in the market ahead of September 22nd. And then I think we're just fine. But to the quad witching topic, Judge, they separated out the S&P 500 from the other of the three, which makes four, of course. The S&P 500 closes on the opening prints of those constituent trades today. So that's already done. Then you've got options um, index options and futures that, that close on the closing prints of all of these. And that's where uh, in the past we had seen some pretty significant um, impact as people you know, are trying to hedge that last minute. If all of a sudden there are you know, not just a billion or two billion dollars or ten billion dollars worth of stocks to buy or sell, but there are a lot more of that due to program trading and so forth. That's again why they separated out uh, the opening print for the S&P 500. This still happens four times a year um, in the regular cycle. So September, the next one will be December and so forth. But not as much impact, Scott, since they've separated it out. Um, and the markets are just a lot more efficient with humans out of the way for most of that. And most of it, Virtu, GTS, uh, DRW, you know, the high frequency firms filling most of that paper that happens in those last few seconds of trade. Um, But overall, I'm not bearish, Scott. I told you I thought that we would be sideways into the uh, 22nd of September Fed announcement. I'd handicap it at 75 or 80 percent that they're not going to announce the taper then that will instead be in November. And that's because of soft things like Michigan sentiment, like the jobs report and like, you know, the softening of GDP and so forth. So I think that buys us a couple more months. And once we get to September 22nd, I think we go back to work to the upside. All right. So, Jenny, on on Wednesday, I did the show from the city at the SALT conference. Everybody on the panel, I think everybody, was kind of negative, except for Dubrovko Lakos of J.P. Morgan, who came on and said, 
I don't know what you guys are talking about. Things are going to be good. They must have been, he must have been listening to Farmer Jim Labenthal. He raised his S&P price target for the end of the year to 4700 Today, there's a cavalcade of positivity around the market, even on what's been a, a, a difficult week. J.P. Morgan on the technical says, so far the S&P uh, pullback holds above a key trend support. We believe the index holds that support and rallies in the fourth quarter. All right, that's number one positive. Number two, Bank of America. Tina, there is no alternative. It remains a compelling argument, they say, for income investors to buy stocks. Not satisfied yet? All right. Well, UBS comes out and says, we think this is a good environment for equities overall, and in particular for the energy and financial sectors. So whereas everybody seemed to be so negative, now to end the week, I feel like we're getting more positive, and there's Tom Lee right when you need him. Further evidence negative shocks are transitory supports everything rally into year end. Jenny Harrington, I teed it up for you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so I'm, I'm wishy-washy. I'm in the middle. And the reason being Why? is I hear, all those bull case, I hear all those bull case arguments. But I also see negatives out there. And actually, in a weird way, the negatives are this return to normal that I keep talking about. So think about what, what returning to normal is. Returning to normal is the Fed not pumping $120 billion into the market every month. We know tapering's coming. But until it does, we're going to have about $700 billion still pumped in, probably. We know that 21, sorry, 21 times valuation, like that's stiff. But to your Tina point, there is no alternative. The 1.3% the 10-year treasury props up valuations. So you've got this like push and pull, and we can just keep going and going. Well, I am a full buyer of your, all of Jim's bull points. What, what's your number okay. one negative? What, yeah. What's your number one negative? Because if you say, okay, it's going to be the taper. Is, well, yeah. I say, okay, so they, they close the spigot just a tiny bit, but water's still gushing out. Right. It's just not as much. But we're still getting all wet with happiness because, you know, the, the market's going to go up because you still got the liquidity. Um, stocks are expensive. Maybe so historically basic. they are. But you know what? As you said, rates are low. They're going to stay low. If the market was overly concerned about the taper, the tenure wouldn't be where it is today. Right. I mean, it would have already moved in anticipation right. of, a, so, of, of a taper. And it really hasn't happened. And we're going to get past so the Delta. Negative? The, we're going to mm -hmm. get past the Delta variant. So like, what's the number one negative? Okay, this is so basic, it might even sound silly, but you know what? We were up 30% in 2019. We we're up 18% in 2020. We we're up almost 20% this year. At some point, there just needs to be a pause where things consolidate. And as we move forward, we're not gonna have 89% of companies beating S&P earnings. We're going to get back to an era where pre-announcements happen. We're gonna get back to an era where 100% returns in 12-month periods on single stocks isn't normal. And so as we consolidate and digest, I'm not that positive. And I mean, I'm not that positive. I'm not super bearish. I don't think we're going to tank because there's all the positives that you put out there. Those are real. And those are going to underlie this market and support it. But I don't think we're going to be up, maybe I'm wrong, I don't think we're going to be up another 20 or 25%. I don't think it's all sunshine and roses from here. I think it's hard work ahead. Frankly, if the market were up the way it's been up for the past three years that we've all become accustomed to, there would be no need for professionals in the business. Everyone could just do it on their own. It's a hard business. And so I think we just need to consolidate and get back to normal. And getting back to normal isn't some beautiful past that was all sunshine and roses. It was hard. So I think that's where we're going. Hey, and I, I also think, Scott? like my version, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sorry, Jenny, it's, it's your favorite fan, Jimmy. Mm -hmm. 
No, it's your favorite fan, Jimmy, but I, I'm going to push back on you a little bit because there's a few things that I could say here. One, I, and I get where you're going, but I, I think that I, I want to talk you out of the negativity. Look at the pre-announcements right now. And you're right, someday they're going to change, but I don't know when that is. Right now, they're decidedly positive. You had in this week, you had Steel Dynamics, Nucor, and U.S. Steel all come out with, with uh, very good guidance raises. This morning, you had Thermo Fisher come out with an incredibly bright future. I know we'll talk about that later. Um, the pre-announcements are there. Also, when you look at, you know, we're due for a consolidation, major swaths of this market have gone through consolidation. I mean, you look at energy, you look at financials, you look at industrials, these stocks have gone through a consolidation. By the way, so has Bang. So, you know, we've had that consolidation slash correction. Um, I'm just not as negative on you. I do agree the Delta variant, we still need to watch for that. And Scott, that's the answer to what the one big negative is. But if we think about taper, I mean, look, taper last happened in 2013, and the market kept rallying until the pandemic, or at least until the fourth quarter of 2018. So taper does not scare me in the slightest bit. And I, I, it just doesn't. Histor- history tells you it's not but something Jim, to be scared about. Jim, let's, but let's just define what bullish means in this era then. You know, I'm saying my version of being not enthusiastic isn't down 10%. It's flat, meandering, eh, you know, because of all this support. What's your version of bullish? Is it up 8% or is it up 25%? Is it up 3%? So so we know... We know we've had a slowdown here globally because of the Delta variant. We know that it's shown up in supply chain shortages, and we know that that is demand that has not been destroyed, but it's been pushed off to 2022. In a perverse way, the Delta variant has done us a favor that instead of all of this economic activity happening in 2021, it's now going to be spread out into 2022. What that means, to your point, is that you're likely to get better profit growth in 2022 than we were thinking about a month ago or two months ago. Ago when we were thinking this is as good as it gets. No, we've just spread it out into 2022. And that profit growth is what's going to send us higher. The market may be up over the next year 10%, 8 9%, 10%. But those cyclical sectors that you and I both love should be up much more right, than here's that. Here's what I want to do. Let's bring in another voice today who thinks we're going to rally 300 points in the S&P 500 by the end of the year. That's right. I said it. Brian Belsky, BMO, via Naples, Florida today. Look at him. He's tan. He's got a smile. He's usually bullish. I don't mean that as a negative. I'm not trying to disparage you. But are you really that (laughs) bullish? We're going to do 8% or more between now and the end of the year, Belsky? Uh, Wapner, we are. Thank you so much for having us. We're humbled to be here. Uh, thank you for that yeah. kind intro. Uh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> you I and I've known each other as, <laughs> as jazzed up as possible, rather than well, let's bring in Brian Belsky at BMO Capital. Okay, uh, I uh, listen. Uh, you and I have known each other for a long time. I was going back yeah. in my memory bank. I think it's been at least fifteen years, wow. and you'll remember dating yourself. You'll remember. I know, I know. You, you remember back in 07, 08, uh, I was probably one of the most uh, bearish strategists on Wall Street. In fact, I was the very first strategist in the world to go to a sell on financials. And so we'll make the tough call when it's time to make the tough call. Now's not the time to make the tough call. And I think the biggest problem that we're facing uh, with all the smart people out there on Wall Street trying to call for a correction is, I'm going to use a finance term, is it, it, the correction talk is really hitting the law of diminishing returns. It's been a chicken little call for about six months now. And yeah, uh, we've seen a bit of a malaise, but the market's down less than 2% in the month of September. 
Traditionally, it's down 50 basis points on an average basis going back to the 1950s. And so we know that it's always weak in September. We get that. But I think what people are missing is we've entered in this period where whether or not it's Tina or not, we've entered in this structural secular period where earnings are good, cash flow is good, operating performance is good, and interest rates are going to remain low. So over the last 10 years, the compound annual growth rate on the, uh, of the S&P 500 is 15%. I'm here to tell you for the next 10 years it's going to be 15%. Now, that doesn't mean every year is going to be up 15%. We are going to slow down a little bit, Scott, but at the end of the day, this is a stock picker's market. This is an ebbs and flow market. That's why Farmer Jim is on to something with respect to the cyclicals. We wrote a note last night saying it's time to stay overweight materials and industrials, two of the worst performing sectors month to date. Again, this is an ebbs and flow market where we see these rolling corrections in growth versus value, cyclical versus stay at home. And I believe that we're at the bottom end of this correction slash consolidation of materials and industrials. And that conclusion is led by fundamentals, things like operating performance and cash flow, things that a lot of investors have kind of forgotten about. And we think it's still time to buy materials and industrials. I don't know. Farmer Jim might, might be, I don't know, he might have cleared too much brush on the farm. I, I don't know. He says the taper is no big whoop. Like it's nothing to worry about. Do you really believe that, Brian Belsky? Do you, you really think that the market's just going to say, ah, so they stopped, they started tapering, no big deal, we're going to continue to rally, unabated, not a problem, because I don't. Well, here's the problem. When people stop talking about the tapering, then it'll be a problem. If you go back in history, remember, uh, we've only had one official taper in the history of the Fed. And the downside came when Mr. Bernanke talked about it in Congress. The market was down 5.8%. From that correction, it was up 10% by the time they tapered six to nine months later. So again, I think we're making too much out of this. I do believe that the Fed needs to peel back, and I do believe that investors will probably become a little bit more defensive. That's why income-bearing instruments in equities are exceedingly important with respect to dividend growth and value, per se, for the next 10 years. I believe it's a forgotten asset class, by the way. But I do believe, uh, I do believe Scott, that we're going to remain in this environment that U.S. stocks look exemplary relative to the rest of the world, and so do Canadian stocks. And I think North America is the place to be. So I think there's been way too much taper vapor. We published a piece on this about six weeks ago, and I think investors are way too focused on that. Just what about the, the facts that earnings can't possibly remain as good as they were now um, because we're coming out of a once-in-100-year event, and the comps are just going to get more difficult as you move forward? I mean, isn't that a real thing? It's an excellent point, Scott. Over the next couple of quarters, we have some tougher comps. But if you go back and look at third and fourth quarter from a consensus basis and bottoms up on the S&P 500, as we do, uh, we're still seeing double-digit earnings growth. I mean, again, going back to history and uh, how long we've known each other, we'll take double-digit interest growth and uh, earnings growth. I'm sorry, and interest rates below two percent all day long. And remember too. Uh, let's talk about bonds. Bonds have been in a bull market for thir- for 40 years, and we still need to see an unwind of that market. There's a lot of talk of the cash into equities uh, at the mothership, otherwise known as Merrill Lynch, now Bank of America. But listen, I, I think that the-, the big move going forward for the next 10 years is out of bonds and into stocks. And I like not enough people are talking about that. Yeah. Liz Young has a question for you, Brian. Yeah. Hi, Brian. First of all, I want to say I'm with you on the cyclicals trade and bullish into the end of the year. But I want to talk about what you just finished with. So 
you mentioned that the dividend trade is the forgotten trade, right? So we've got right now the 10-year treasury at about the same yield as the dividend yield in the S&P. And you just mentioned too that we still need to see an unwind in bonds, which would suggest that the 10-year has to rise. As that rises, are dividend stocks still attractive? Will they still be the forgotten trade that people should be in or should they be the forgotten trade? It's a great question, Liz. And, and we've been running dividend growth money for a long, long time at various firms. And we have a process on how we look at things. 60% of our portfolio are always names that have never cut the dividend. The ran 40% of the, of the portfolio are, are comprised of higher yielding names and those names that are growing the dividend. You know what's really interesting from a secular basis, Liz, is that some of the strongest dividend growth names in the United States of America are tech stocks. You saw what Microsoft did, see what Apple's doing. There's been such structural and secular change in the technology sector. That's where the big dividend growth's coming. So if you combine those three factors, you can massively outperform just buying the DVY or simply higher yielding. And if you think from a fundamental perspective, those names are going to continue to outperform from the dividend growth side of things. I can't, I can't see Jenny right now, but you're talking dividends, and I, I, she might have fallen off her chair like trying to like jump and join <laughs> the conversation. So Jenny, it's, it's all yours. I know you have a question as well, but this is like right in your Thanks. wheelhouse. It is, and it's something I think about a lot. Now, unlike you, Brian, I run a dividend income strategy with the objective of being generating significant dividend income. So that's obviously done nicely over the last, I don't know, couple decades almost, as interest rates have done nothing but go down and down and down and force investors into dividend income stocks for those people who need income. So one of the things that I worry about is, yeah, we've had this 40-year bull market in bonds, and so bond investors have had really positive returns. But what happens when we see the 10-year at 3.5% again? Does money then actually start to flow into bonds because it can Why are we worried about that? Again? We're all going to be really dead. We'll, we'll be dead when that happens, right? <laughs> well, well, that was my question. Why are you that talking about question. that? That's like, what? <laughs> right. Right. So my question to Brian is, do you think that in my career, which I've got pinned for several more decades ahead of me, you think we actually see the 10-year at 35 anytime? Or do you think we permanently stay at this low level and that all bonds ever do is give people total return and they never return to a real income producing vehicle, a meaningful income producing vehicle? Well, I usually use the comeback at this time of Johnny Rain Cloud, but maybe it should be Jenny Rain Cloud. No, I, I don't I don't know. And if you take a look <laughs> at the since the financial crisis, uh, you know, the average 10 year treasury is 2 percent. Over the last 70 years, the average 10 year treasury is 5 percent. I'm with Scott. I don't think I'll ever see that in my lifetime uh, again. But I think at the end of the day, uh, you still want to buy companies uh, that are going to outperform in, when an interest rate environment goes up. And in the, we've shown in our work that the stock market actually can do very well when we, raise from, when we rise from these lower levels, Jenny. But I think the key thing is this, is that during the financial crisis, a lot of companies, meaning financial companies, were not allowed to pay dividends. And what you've seen the last couple of years is that they're starting to crank out dividends again. And I think it's a lost art here in the United States. And, and I'm not saying you don't buy tech because tech, communication services, and, and, and discretionary are their three favorite sectors for the next five years. But I think if you're running a diversified equity portfolio, you absolutely positively have to have an income growth component to that. And again, per my prior comments, technology is a huge part of that. So I say I'm, I'm not sure if there's going to be this massive rotation back into bonds at 3.5%. Again, I think the bull market's got 10 more years to go on equities. And I think by then, uh, I think when, when we start talking about bonds will never go uh, up again, that's when you want to buy bonds. You know, I, I, 
I heard all the negative arguments, and then when Dubrovko of J.P. Morgan came on with me a couple of days ago, and was positive, and you know talked post-COVID and the the, the boom that you're going to still get, I said, well, that sounds compelling. That maybe people are trying too hard to paint a negative picture. Oh, by the way, buybacks too, right? Diamondback today, Microsoft. You're going to get more. And once we get past the Delta variant, I feel like there's going to be another boom feel. I mean, am I crazy? No, you're not crazy. We wrote in our piece when we talked about 2021 that the return to normalcy was going to be much bumpier than most people thought. And indeed, that has occurred in 2021. I think more normalcy will just continue as we roll into 2022 and 2023. And I think that's where you really get the bump back in terms of earnings. You see additional innovation from all these sectors that have been kind of sitting on the sidelines. People are going to get back to work. I think the boom hasn't even started yet from a fundamental perspective. And that's why we're so promised on the stock market as we transition more to an earnings-driven, fundamentally-driven market versus the momentum that we've seen really for the last 12 or 18 months. Hey, unless you kill it all with tax hikes. I mean, you know, well, you, you just laugh. had to I bring mean, that's that like in, the reality. What, why, why are you laughing? Well, well, no, because so if you do the math and a lot of people don't do the math, if you do the math and you say, let's go corporate taxes at 25 percent, let's agree to, to disagree. It's going to be 25 percent. Let, let's take the bets. It's a 3 percent hit to earnings. OK, 3 percent. So re- relatively de minimis. If you go back to what they're saying in cap gains, it's not going to go to ordinary. Remember, there was a fear that they're going to go to ordinary tax rates on cap gains. And so you have to have the gains to take as well. And I think what, what people are missing and why the numbers in the report from Bank of America is so bullish today is that really the high net worth component of the market is where investors are under are, are actually investing right now. And they're going to continue to put capital work. It's the institutional investors that have been underperforming. And I think that's what's being kind of missed in the marketplace. Okay. Always fun. Brian Belsky, thank you so much. Have a good weekend. We'll see you soon. Thank you. All right. The investment committee making moves. Jenny is adding to a position. We're going to talk about that after the break. Plus, one year ago today, Jenny made a bet with Josh Brown that one of the stocks in her portfolio would outperform one of the stocks in his portfolio. Well, we have the scorecard. Ain't pretty. We'll talk about it next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. 
Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Josh, I'll bet you whatever fat, expensive hamburger you want, I'll bet if we look at one year from today, <laughs> I'll bet you Intel's share price, I'm, I'll, I'll happily pay if I lose, but I know I'll win. Um, so I'll bet you <laughs> Intel's share price has appreciated more than NVIDIA's share price. Well, that was Jenny Harrington one year ago today with a bold bet, as you heard, that Intel would outperform NVIDIA over the next year. Let's look at the returns. It didn't happen. Jenny? Now, I'm not sure if the Polo Bar, well, Polo Bar's not open yet. Mineta has an amazing burger. I think the 21 Club, I'm not sure if that's open, but I love that burger, too. I know where Josh, Josh likes to roll usually at the shack, but he's going to milk this one now. Oh, not for this, not for this one. Yeah. Dan- Daniel Balut is He wants burger. gold on his hamburger. Jenny. <laughs> I think you deserve the first word here after the tape. Thank you. Talk to me. Okay. I have four takeaways on this. One, it's unwise to make an audacious... Come on. It's unwise to make an audacious bet on national TV. Okay. I was totally wrong. Okay, there. Two, I will never back down on that valuation matters and that that will underpin my process. Three, it's a good reminder that you don't need to be right all the time. And four... If I liked Intel at 12 times last year with all the good things that have gone on this year, right? Like they'd be earning three times. They got Pat Gelsinger. They're getting into the founder business. If I liked it at 12 times last year, I should love it at 12 times this year. So, Josh, double or nothing? Oh, no, 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 no. No. <laughs> no, no, spare us. We don't want to wait another year. Neither does Josh. He's hungry. He's got his head right. on. He's already Whatever burger you want, you won. Jenny, Jenny, honestly. You won by a million miles. <laughs> I know that's the thing. It's the magnitude. Um, look, I I don't yeah, I don't terrible. disagree with you that valuation matters. But honestly, if it were that easy to just look at like uh, you know uh, e- EBITDA to enterprise value or PE ratio, it, like everybody would be rich. What what's required, especially in technology, maybe more so than any other sector. What's required in technology is an imagination. So there's all these guys walking around Wall Street. They're like, oh, I'm a numbers guy. Oh, that's great. Every number that you could locate, I could find too with a Google search. There's no edge. Like anybody could see that Intel is cheaper. Anybody could see that Intel is cheaper than NVIDIA (laughs) on every metric. What's required is imagination, creativity. And many of Which the types I would of people argue, come into Wall Street don't have it. They don't have it. They're, but I would argue that my imagination here, sorry, I would imagine, I would argue my imagination here is far greater than yours. <laughs> okay. I imagined a that's stock one, up 70%. I guess 70%. that's one way to look at it. You know what? You imagined the world in which Intel mattered in technology anymore. But what you weren't, but what you were doing actually is investing in the rearview mirror. You know you what, to me... To me, this story. No, but, speaks, but in fairness, I wasn't. Jenny, to me, this story uh, is a market story. It speaks to what's hot and what's not. People are willing to pay up for growth and momentum and a sexy story rather than old and tired mm. and having to turn a ship and 
Se- but se- sexy story diminishes. <laughs> sexy story diminishes the actual con- Jensen Wang and the engineers at Nvidia. Intel is making CPU chips like it's 1998, and they're not even good at it. They can't even ship things on time. Nvidia is basically making uh, GPUs and nonlinear processors that are going to power every industry that will matter over the next 10 years, AI, machine learning, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality. Intel is not an important player in any of those places. So yeah, the story's sexy, but the fundamentals are also sexy. Well, of course. The earnings growth of is course. explosive. The revenue growth is off but, the charts. Of course, but part of my point is like, when you mention NVIDIA, people like you, your eyes light up and Kramer, his eyes light up and he loves talking about what Jensen Wong is doing as one of the geniuses in the technology world right now. It's an easy story to tell. It's an easy story to convince investors to get on board with. It's a much heavier lift with Intel because of where the company has been, how it's been outpaced by some of its competitors and where it's trying to go, albeit with a very qualified and highly Jenny. thought of CEO. Jenny, you ever look at a stock and say like, yes, that's expensive. I wonder why. Like, do you ever th- say like, well, maybe the market is Josh, right to be paying so up here's the that thing. stock? But here's the thing. I run a dividend income portfolio. So my first hurdle is, will this produce a long and consistent and reliable income stream? So I have a very different process that backs right. up what I'm actually able to buy. I, the reality is, is I never could have bought NVIDIA, right? Even in our discipline growth strategy, the first, the first hurdle is, does it have a 5% or better free cash flow yield? And the truth is, if it doesn't, we're not gonna touch it. We manage very, very tight, very disciplined strategies that work within certain contexts. So the reality is, is like, I couldn't buy NVIDIA. And you know what, Scott, just to your point about the market doesn't credit ugly things, the reality is, is it is crediting ugly things. They just don't really make the headlines. Like if I look at my dividend portfolio, what's up the most this year? Navient, which trades at like five times earnings. It's a student loan processing company that couldn't be less sexy or unappealing. No, I understand. I'm not talking group, about that. I'm talking company. about when so, if you have to make no, a giant it's case on, on turning an, an aircraft carrier around You're in right. a reasonably short period <laughs> of time, it's going to be difficult to, to do that. I want to know, where are you going to have the burger? I, Josh is going to be nice. Maybe he'll go with like Anywhere JG. Jenny and like I, 10 bucks, 15 bucks. Jenny, I, Jenny and I actually have plans. <laughs> Don't we have plans for next Thursday as it is? We do, right? We do. All right. You guys okay. take, so a, we'll take some photos. But we might need to do it at lunch, not dinner. <laughs> take some photos and post it. And we'll, we'll mention where you guys were at. And, uh, and that's what happens. Deal. Good segment. Josh, thank you. Jenny, thanks for being a good sport. The headlines with Rahel Solomon are right now. Hi, Rahel fun there. And here's our CNBC News update at this hour. The Pentagon has approved a request to provide 100 National Guard members for tomorrow's demonstration in Washington, D.C. The rally is in support of the hundreds of people charged in the breach of the Capitol on January 6th. The National Guard will only be used if requested by Capitol Police. The National Institutes of Health starting a $470 million study to determine why some people have long-term symptoms after a COVID infection. They hope to find ways to prevent that from happening. And at the National Zoo in Washington, six lions and three tigers have tested positive for the virus that causes COVID-19. Keepers became concerned when they started coughing and sneezing and weren't as active as usual. They're being watched closely pending the result of more testing. 
And tonight on the news, 10 years after the start of the Occupy Wall Street protests, a look at how they prompted more activism on social issues. You're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, you have a good weekend. Thank you. Check out this mystery chart, a stock that's up 35% over the past six months. It is rallying again today, hitting new all-time highs. We're going to reveal the name, debate if you should add it to your portfolio at these levels. We'll do that next. Plus, CNBC's Delivering Alpha is back on September 29th, bringing together the biggest names in the investment community. You could register today at DeliveringAlpha.com. We're back on The Half right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Get to CNBC's Hugh Sun. He has a scoop on Goldman's recent $2 billion acquisition of Green Sky. Tell us about your reporting, Hugh. Hey, Scott. Nice to be with you. So as I just reported on CNBC.com, uh, you know, as we know, on Wednesday, Goldman Sachs and Green Sky announced an acquisition by Goldman Sachs of Green Sky, a fintech player in the buy now, pay later world. And so uh, you see this, unfortunately, sometimes with acquisitions that involve public companies. Uh, but there was some unusual uh, activity in the options market in calls that were purchased in the week or, or two weeks ahead of the acquisition. So, uh, you know, this is a thinly traded market. You know, uh, volumes are typically less than 1,000 calls, uh, but they surged to about 12,000 in the days ahead. And specifically, in the day before the acquisition was announced, there was a trader who, who bought 8,000 calls uh, for Green Sky that would only pay off in the scenario that Green Sky would surge, you know, 30 or 40 percent or 50 percent beyond the $10 strike price. So, you know, these these options, these calls were specifically worth perhaps five cents when when the trader bought it. The very next day, they were worth 3,900 percent more. Hmm. So an, an astounding gain in uh, in overnight, essentially. And what uh, options experts tell me is, you know, blatant, blatant, um, you know, insider trading. Uh, I'd like to go to one options expert, John Ajarian. I'm curious as to what your reaction is. You, you often, you know, when you do unusual activity, John, um, you always say, hey, maybe this was just good fortune, or maybe I think the, the, the way you say it is somebody had tomorrow's newspaper today. Yeah, that's exactly right. And hats off to Hugh for this great investigative journalism and Bob Pisani. Um, yeah, Scott, the the likelihood that there's a coincidence here that somebody bought 8,000 calls for a nickel uh, that ended up going, uh, so that $40,000 investment became worth nearly $2 million. Um, that coincidence just doesn't smell right. I suspect that just like Hugh has been writing, that a lot of people will be looking into this to see because into Labor Day, Scott, it was trading about 153 contracts a day. Um, we cite uh, our blog. We put it up last week for unusual activity on the 9th of September, 
And sure enough, uh, there were several days that looked pretty <clears throat> darn suspicious where it traded into the thousands and even tens of thousands of shares just ahead of this announced deal with Goldman. So it certainly seems like somebody may have had tomorrow's newspaper today. Scott. Hugh, Hugh, I give you the last word. What, is the SEC saying anything? Any, any regulatory uh, arm looking into this? We've reached out. You know, Gary Gensler has gone on, on our show and said that, you know, the SEC is strapped and, and sort of understaffed. So I anticipate that they're going to look at this and that hopefully they would consider this low-hanging fruit for them to pursue. Yeah, we'll see. Good reporting. Thanks for bringing it to us. Hugh Sohn, CNBC.com. Go check out his story. Definitely worth a read. Thermo Fisher is meeting with analysts today. The stock is soaring, hitting all-time highs. We mention it because Jim and Jenny, you both own it. Farmer Jim, I haven't heard from you in a while. You go first. Uh, thanks. And, you know, I feel like I haven't talked about Thermo Fisher in a while, and I really should be. This stock is a workhorse. The guidance that they came out with today, both for next year and for the next four years, is really quite tremendous. Next year's blows away the estimates. And they see a very good line of sight over the next four years. I think an important thing is it's not dependent on COVID. We all want COVID to go away, but it's not dependent on COVID. It's just dependent upon continuing drug development in developed worlds. Uh, they have made uh, some excellent acquisitions. Next year, they're likely to do a nice share buyback and dividend increase. It's probably a reason that Jenny likes it. This stock just keeps performing, and I'm sticking with it. Jenny? We're sticking with it too. Same assessment as Jim with the one nuance being we added this last year at the end of March when it was trading a lot less um, richly than it is now. So we've had this huge return. And from here, our level of enthusiasm for upside is just tempered. You know, we've had an 80 percent return. We don't expect that kind of return in the future. So I think this is part of the back to normal theme. Um, you know, it's trading at, at 30 times now. That's not that cheap, but it, we think it'll grow into it. All right. Good stuff. Thank you. All right. Stick around. John has unusual activity coming up next. We'll be right back. Dr. J, what do you have for us today on unusual activity? Well, we'll have to see if this plays out as well as green skies, Scott. But uh, first one, these are both October plays. First one, Caesars, CZR. Not the exposure over in Macau that everybody's trying to avoid, but obviously lots of exposure in Vegas. They're buying the October 115 calls with the stock around 109. Second one, Scott, Lucid. Began the year at $10, ran into the 50s, almost $60 during that SPAC craze and has bled back off to in the 20s. We see the uh, 22 calls uh, and the 24 calls that expire October 1st. Uh, so little uh, over a week, two weeks into the future, Scott. And quickly, Matterport, one that we talked about with you, it's a Josh Brown stock. So again, a lot of Josh Brown love today. This one I talked about for final trade last week. It's up 39x on the calls from just last week. They went from 15 cents to $2.60 in MTTR. All right, good stuff. Doc, thank you very much. All right, up next, we're going to reveal Jenny's latest move in her portfolio. We'll be back in two minutes. All right. Question for you, Liz, from Brian in Illinois. I would love your thoughts, he says, on the XBI, year-to-date down 7%. The SPY is up 21%. Thank you. What's the answer? Hi, Brian. So the XBI index for everybody is the biotech index. The reason it's down is because there was an anticipation that there would be spending cuts in this reconciliation bill 
there are spending cuts in the reconciliation bill. The good news is that it's already down. So a lot of that bad news is priced in. I am constructive on the healthcare sector overall, including biotech going forward. I think this pandemic changed healthcare entirely. It's made it forever different and forever necessary. A really good way to get exposure to healthcare in a more diversified way is to buy a Russell 2000 ETF. Leave it to me to turn this into a pitch for small cap, but a Russell 2000 <laughs> ETF, you'll get a lot of healthcare exposure. You have plenty of biotech exposure and you spread out your risk a little more. It's funny how you did that, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jenny, I've been teasing the whole show about adding um, to one of your positions. You bought more Teradyne. Tell our viewers why, please. Right, so this is in our... This is in our discipline growth strategy, and it's an interesting one because we actually trimmed Teradyne back in January at $140 a share. Last week, traded down to 20 times earnings and 120 a share, and we bumped it back up. It's a really interesting story, and one of the things that I think is most unique about it is they have a business called Universal Robots that's totally unappreciated within the context of the overall Teradyne stock. Um, we think Universal Robots alone could be about $20 a share. Meanwhile, there's an insatiable demand for semiconductors. We all know that, right? But they play, they are one of two players in the diagnostics and testing equipment space for semis. So they kind of win no matter who. It, whether Josh wins the bet or I win the bet, Teradyne wins equally much. So we bumped up the position, feeling really good about it, and plan to hold it for a very, very long time. Okay, appreciate you telling us about that. We'll step away. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. Okay, let's do some Friday final trades. Liz Young, you're up first. Final trade today is industrials. I've been constructive on industrials for a long time. The market has given me free refills of humble pie, but I'm staying on it. I still believe in the cyclical trade into year end. Hold on. See, I, I have to go to Farmer Jim uh, after that for, for obvious reasons. <laughs> I mean, I mean you're you know wingman. You're, you're uh, wingman on the cyclical I, I, trade. <laughs> but but she, I think she's absolutely right. You've got supply chain onshoring. You've got the potential for infrastructure spending. And you've just got high corporate profits that go back into capital expenditure. So I'm with her. Um, on a different note, my final trade is Disney. Uh, I think it's coming out of this six-month consolidation phase, and I think it's making its move above 200 now. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Jenny? National retail properties, 4.7% dividend yield, and they've increased this dividend for 32 years straight. They're collecting a ton of cash flow, and they own big box standalone retailers that pay triple net lease on their um, on their rentals. Okay, thank you. And last but not least, the doctor, Dr. J. It's going to shock you, Scott. It's a tech play. It's a cloud play and a plan. P L A N. Stock has been moving up steadily. I'm long the stock as of today through the calls. All right, everybody, have a great weekend. It's good to see all of you as well. And same to you. I'll see you on the other side. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.